Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The private member's bill has been talked about a great deal over the last couple of days, and it's the private member's bill from NDP Member of Parliament Charlie Angus. Bill 372, which Mr. Angus, and I've read it, Mr. Angus compares it to legislation of the 1990s to punish the tobacco industry for its then willful and incorrect advertising. So I don't remember a whole lot of willful, incorrect advertising by the tobacco industry in the 1990s, certainly earlier than that, but the 1990s, they were backing off. But hey, we don't want to just nitpick here, Charlie. His bill would result... Uh, in difficulties for positive advertising and messaging by oil and natural gas producers and their supporters. At its worst, if they were to misrepresent their product, terrible oil, terrible natural gas. What the hell was the city bus doing? I just looked out the window. There's a city bus drove by. said, powered by natural gas. Get it off the road. Or Charlie's coming for you. Um, <laughs> you can't outthink those who aren't thinking. I uh, I did I did get in touch or try to get in touch with Charlie Angus, who's been on this program on a number of occasions. Sent him an email. What was that old Beatles song? No reply. Happened once before, before I came to your door and reply. Anyway, I uh, I sent Mr. Angus an email. He didn't reply. Charlie only replies when he. Charlie, finish that. Give me a call now, Charlie. Right now, one eight hundred two six three two four two eight. Right now, Charlie, one eight hundred two six three two four two eight, and I'll have you talk to my guest who's here. Be happy to talk to you. Chris Sankey is our guest. Chris is a former elected councillor at the Laxquilam's First Nation. He's a businessman, op-ed writer, senior fellow at the McDonald Gloria Institute. And I think, uh, I think, Chris, you could probably give Charlie a run for his money on this, don't you think? Absolutely. Good to have you with us, Chris. How are you? Uh, good, good. Thanks for having me. That was a pleasure. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Let, let me start, before we talk about Mr. Angus's legislation, let me just go to what Joe Biden has done, and that is to uh, postpone, or, or to, or to uh, not postpone, but to uh, end, suspend licenses for the export for liquid natural gas. That, if we had the infrastructure to export, it would be a massive green light for this country and bring huge, huge amounts of money into, into Canada. There will be those who will argue, well, look, First Nations don't want it. What do you say to that, Chris? Uh, that's not true. Um, look, at the end of the day, uh, <clears throat> Indigenous people are part of the solution to the economic engine, and natural gas is needed everywhere. It's not just here in Canada, but everywhere around the world. Um, we have an abundance of it. It would mean uh, billions into the GDP, back to the country, thousands of jobs, and we'd be an independent uh, energy um, giant. Uh, Angus's bill is just probably the, the most ridiculous private member's bill I have ever read. 
It's atrocious. I mean, it completely violates human rights to say and have freedom of expression. And I don't know where he he thinks he's um, where he thinks he's right. Uh, everybody, no matter what, if it's oil and gas, has a right to advertise. And the companies that I work with, all of them are publicly traded companies. Do you think they're going to put something out there that is misleading or disinformation? They're not going to do that. Charlie's trying to target um, organizations like the Canadian Gas Association, which I'm a part of the National Organizing Committee. They're already trying to attack uh, colleagues of mine. <clears throat> and there's a number of other organizations, Indigenous and non, that are advertising responsible resource development. So what does that mean? That means that we're going to be responsible in developing our resources. We're going to have indigenous input into the environmental assessment process, which we have clearly. The ISLA have demonstrated that with LNGC and now CEDAR. And so it's just absolute lunacy that this individual has the audacity to threaten people by throwing them in jail. Like, where does he think he thinks he is? If you want to behave that way, move to Russia, move somewhere else, get out of the country. You don't talk to uh, Canadians like that, threaten them for, for the right to have the freedom of expression to promote a resource that's going to not only help Canada, but it's going to help bring thousands of indigenous people who desperately need sole source revenues out of poverty. I mean, he's he's the the member for Timmins, James Bay, and they've got a massive population over there of Indigenous people. And he claims to think that uh, these doctors with the Canadian Association of Physicians, who are constantly attacking the energy industry, they should be more focused on the drug overdose that's going on over the violent crimes that are taking place, the hospitals that are being overrun. Instead, that whole organization has been so fixated in attacking an industry that's keeping people alive and the lights on. And they, they keep attacking Canada's natural resources. If you're so worried about emissions around the world, go to the Middle East, go to Venezuela, go to Mexico, go to these places that have zero human rights, Go to these places that have no environmental standards. It's just absolute lunacy. And he's not smart enough to think of this bill on his own. There's obviously lobbying groups that are, are going to him and pushing this bill. And they're trying to shut down any sort of language that pertains to a positive message uh, for Canada. And our indigenous people, what's he going to do? He's going to throw in, he's going to throw all of the indigenous communities that are are looking to buy TMX in jail for promoting their oil project. I mean, does Charlie uh, drive from Timmins to, to Ottawa? I mean, how many, air, how many air miles does that guy have? What, it takes oil and gas to get there. I don't know what he thinks he's, he's doing, but it's got to be the stupidest bill I've ever read in my life. In fact, it's infuriating. And the fact that Parliament would even entertain that, it's a gross misuse of power. And quite frankly, if it was up to me, I, he should just step down. You don't threaten people's lives like that, trying to turn them upside down and throw them in jail for advertising something positive. Nobody's advertising anything negative or disinformation or misinformation. 
this guy is out of his mind, man. It's not, it's not. It's not like it, it, it sounds to me like you're throwing down the gauntlet to uh, Charlie Angus, and I'd be more than happy to have him debate you on Absolutely. this program. I know you would. I know. I know you would say yes. A hundred percent, I would. And so are the thousands of indigenous communities that rely on natural gas and oil. I mean, it, it's it's in our backyard. It's no different than fishing and forestry. Well, how do we get out there? We need oil and gas. I no. mean. <laughs> It's just lunacy what he's doing, and uh, the fact that he's trying to accuse the energy industry for falsifying ads, that's absolute nonsense. That's not true. Like I said, these, these companies are heavily regulated. They can't be putting out misinformation or disinformation. And I'm tired of these environmental groups lobbying Ottawa uh, to shut down an, an industry that's keeping the lights on in this country. And we're losing billions because of the absolute lunacy and nonsense that comes out of Ottawa with the likes of, of Charlie Angus. He's literally kill, helping kill this economy, the country. I mean, who's going to want to come here? You can't even advertise a natural resource that we use virtually every day of our lives. If he's so hell-bent on stopping everything and not advertising, well, he should just walk around the world naked. Because everything we require requires hydrocarbons to live. Yeah, our clothing, our food, everything, yeah. transportation, infrastructure, everything is required oil and gas. So you tell me what the alternative is. I was speaking, uh, Chris, with a former chief of a Northern Ontario community, First Nations community, uh, just day before yesterday. He's coming on the show next Saturday. And uh, just talking about the, the challenges of life in that community that exist year after year after year. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the politicians, the, the federal parties, all of them, but particularly, uh, you know, we have to look at Mr. Trudeau now because he's been in power for nine years. They, they talk a good game at election time and then you don't see them anymore or, they, or, or then later during their, during their tenure, they talk to their constituents they want to reach with a particular message and they forget the constituencies that don't have tremendous uh, uh, punching back power. They're, they're useful at election time, but then later on they're not that useful anymore so they forget about them. And in many cases, this is First Nations communities. I don't think you disagree with me on that. No, yeah, not at all. Look, we, uh, we are the solution to the economic engine. Uh, oil and gas aren't going anywhere. And we're going to continue to advertise this resources, this resource that's keeping people uh, alive, medical supplies. We're going to continue to advertise this. Yeah. Nobody's providing any sort of misinformation or disinformation. Chris, I just want to read you. Let me put you, make sure I don't lose you here. I want to read you a couple of emails that have come in in the last three minutes about you. From Anthony to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com. He's a brilliant orator. That's you. We could pay off our national debt with Canada's oil and gas exports alone. Jeanette writes, Roy, I love your guest, Chris. It's so good to hear someone who's so emphatic about how Trudeau and team are destroying our economy and society. Thanks for the great show. Um, and I get a text message from 403 area code. Roy Charlie Angus is about as dumb as Gibo. Your guest has hit the nail right on the head. It is 
lunacy. So, there is, though, uh, Chris, there's this unrelenting, and you mentioned it, there's this unrelenting pressure on oil and gas, on natural resources, on the industries in this country. We should be happy that we have what the world needs. We should be exporting it. How many times do we have to say this? We should be selling it as quickly and as and, and as plentifully as we can and refill our depleted treasury. But there's so much pushback. There is, you know, <laughs> millions of dollars have come into this country to block Canada's oil and gas sector. And granted, you know, industry wasn't always as clean as it used to be 20 years ago. I mean, as clean as it is now 20 years ago. But the fact that Canada continues to get attacked by these interest groups that are fully funded by a number of foreign entities to block Canada's responsible resource development, they're continuing to attack Alberta, oil sands. Uh, you want to talk about slander? You want to talk about, saying misinformation? They call the oil sands tar sands. That's incorrect. You have a, a bunch of physicians out there attacking the gas industry, putting up ads that are incorrect. What about them? Are you going to throw them in jail? It's absolute nonsense. And we are losing billions. People can't afford their homes. Yeah. We're, the, the, the average person is so far in debt. It's so I funny. just, I have to stop you there, but I hope you'll come back really soon, Chris. Absolutely. That was a pleasure. Roy, and I, I look forward to further discussions. Thank you. They're important. Sexual assault and Canada's justice system. So five members, as you know, of the 2018 Team Canada Juniors on Monday faced their first day in court on sexual assault charges. We're now going to speak with a guest who just weeks ago saw the conclusion of her court case as complainant in a sexual assault case. What was it like? What's the experience like for the complainant with our justice system? So we cannot name our guests, can't use her real name, we'll use a, um, a substitute name because of a court-imposed publication ban. We will call our guest Michelle. Michelle, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for doing this. Yes, absolutely. It's really, really important because I, I know from conversations I've had over the years with women who've told me they've been sexually assaulted, they're not sure whether they should come forward, they're not sure whether the police or the justice system, the crown attorneys, the courts, the judges, the juries, will be fair to them. So I think it's important, again, important that we have a chance to talk to you. Um, also with this is uh, back with us is Jacob Jake Jessen, principal at Rotenberg Shedlowski Jessen LLP in Toronto. Mr. Jessen deals with uh, many sexual assault cases, and he is Michelle's lawyer as well. Jake, thank you. How are you? Afternoon, Roy. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks for asking, Michelle. Was was it difficult for you to uh, decide to report your assault? Yeah, it was. It was extremely difficult. Um, the sexual assault happened in 2019 in the fall. 
And um, for me, it was with an intimate partner that I had been with for 20 years. And it was extremely difficult to come forward. And I didn't end up doing so until um, 2022 when I was fully out of the house. Um, There's a lot of um, feelings that one has, you know, before you, you go and report such, such a thing happening to you. Um, and I think the first is that you really have to wrap your own head around what happened because, um, it's, it's a really hard thing to admit to yourself, number one. And in my particular situation, because there was interpartner violence and, um, two children from that relationship. Um, I was really concerned about the effect on my kids of coming forward and not necessarily thinking about myself. Yeah. What do you tell the kids? So, um, well, they, they don't know anything because um, eventually I did separate from their father. And, you know, I have them with me this weekend and they're happily watching Netflix as I'm taking this call outside in my vehicle. <laughs> so they, they don't you know, hear uh, any of that. Luckily for, for my boys, they didn't witness any of it. Um, they certainly heard fighting throughout the years, but, you know, they didn't witness the sexual assaults and the assaults that, that did occur. Um, so I, I do keep them sheltered from that. How would you, um, how would you assess how you were treated by uh the justice system, when you did come forward, starting with the police and then with the crown, <laughs> how, how were you treated? Yeah, um, you know, going to the police, it, it really helps having, I chose to um, consult um, with my lawyer first because I just really wanted to understand the ramifications of coming forward and what that would mean in my particular situation, especially with the children, right? So once I understood that, I felt comfortable to come forward. And for me, it was extremely therapeutic. Um, in my first meeting with the police, they first come to your house or you, you choose to report it. You give a summary of the, the events that occurred that you're, you're reporting. And then I had to go in and do a formal statement. And going into the station and doing a formal statement, you know, it does feel a little bit more intimidating because you're making something that was so... Um, traumatic, you know, you're bringing it to life, you're, you're telling somebody it's becoming public, um, you're, you're providing the statement um, as best you can, you know, in terms of giving as much detail as you possibly can. Um, but, you know, initially going to police, I, I definitely felt a little bit more comfortable throughout the process, the detective um, uh, there's only certain types of officers that receive training and and they're able to handle the situation a little bit more appropriately um, so that you you can feel comfortable to disclose things. So that that in itself was was pretty therapeutic and it it felt good to tell somebody and um, to explain what had happened. Okay. So, so your lawyer is, uh, is, a, is our other guest, uh, Jacob Jake uh, Jessen. Mr. Jessen has been on this program uh, several times recently with the, as far as the Team Canada Juniors story is concerned. Uh, and I know, Jake, if we get close to the line about what we can and cannot say because of the um, 
the court the court situation, the court decision. You will you will alert us to this, but. Uh, I'd, I'd like to, um, uh, we have to take a break in two minutes, but then I want to step aside and have you talk to each other, please, and, and, and share with us what, 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 you know, what happened. But f- for you as a, as a criminal lawyer who deals with sexual assault cases quite regularly, what's the most important consideration for someone who has been sexually assaulted, female or male, it does happen to men, What's the most important consideration? How do you approach it as a criminal lawyer? I think what's interesting is that, uh, and I know we're limited in time, but I'll just mention that right now there's a program that's been around for a couple of years. If people Google independent legal advice for survivors, just uh, push that in, you'll get, there's an actual voucher. The Ontario government gives people an opportunity uh, for up to four hours of free legal advice with a number of criminal lawyers who are on the list or civil lawyers who are on the list to really inform themselves. Uh, and make themselves, uh, you know, have, have that the information available to them about what's involved in going to the police, uh, the process. And I think that's really a, a key change uh, in how things are uh, being looked at in the justice system now. We're really trying to, you know, give people some assurances and information before they come forward. Uh, and that's like the first step, making sure that they're able and, and prepared and understand the process that it's easier for them right from the outset. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots more to say on that. <laughs> yeah. There for now. yeah. Is it fairly standard? Uh, and I don't want to just say there's a cookie cutter approach to anything uh, significant as sexual assault, but is it standard for victims of sexual assault to just not say anything for a considerable period of time, potentially, and then eventually saying, I, I, I just can't live with this anymore. I have to, I have to step forward. Yeah, we've come a long way in our understanding over the last couple of decades uh, in terms of the ideology of how uh, complainants come forward. And, you know, there used to be this notion that if you didn't come forward right away, that it was an, uh, an issue of credibility. And, and now, not so much. We, we now accept that uh, the, the survivor experience, uh, the victim experience is completely different for everyone and people react differently to all sorts of different traumas and, and situations. And, and we don't necessarily... You know, we look we look at a, a more of a holistic approach as opposed to simply saying just because you didn't come forward. So it is pretty typical for uh, many people, uh, you know, to to wait some time before they come forward to wait until they're ready uh, for all sorts of reasons uh, that exist. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty normal. Can can I just ask the two of you to just talk to each other and we'll just eavesdrop on on what is most memorable. Um, about the experience once you're dealing with the authorities, Michelle and, and uh, Jake is your lawyer and, uh, and now, and now you're in court or heading to court. Let me get out of the way and ask you to talk to each other, please. Sure. Perhaps, perhaps Michelle, maybe I can ask you because maybe this will be of some assistance to some of the listeners out there. And I, I you know, we hear a lot about how traumatic uh, the experience is going to court. <laughs> and there's a lot of sort of that notion out there. And perhaps you can talk about uh, sort of what helped you get through it or what advice you would give to people coming forward uh, in terms of facing, uh, you know, the justice system and and attending court and and, uh, how you address that. Sure. In my in my particular situation, um, I did have independent legal advice. So that helped me prepare for the trial in the sense of what to expect. Uh, the Crown does meet with you, and you are assigned a victim's worker assistant, like a, a VWAP worker. So it's a, a worker that um, can answer all of your questions and that are sometimes with you during the day of the trial and keep you 
it, um, knowledgeable of, of everything that's happening and leading up to the trial. Um, so that's great. But I think what, what was kind of shocking for me to find out is, I mean, you hear about the Crown. The Crown's representing the case for the people, but you yourself are a victim. So what was, what was an interesting moment was when I received notice of the trial and I was subpoenaed. And it had my name on the subpoena to appear as a witness. And so even the wording of that and, and, and looking at the form, you think, well, this happened to me. I was the victim, you know, the, of, of this crime, but the Crown's calling me as a witness. So I think it's, um, it, was, it was just, it, it took me a moment to wrap my head around that um, because the Crown is there just to represent the case, not to re- represent you. So I think seeking independent legal advice either through the voucher program or if you have resources to do it on your own, that's great. I was, I was lucky enough to have that. Um, and just to be having that, that time to, to prepare and know what to expect because what you're being asked to do in trial is in a very public forum, describe the most horrific things that have happened to you, right? And, and then to be questioned and cross-examined on them. And it's, it's, um, it's not a great feeling being in court, I have to say, um, but overall, it wasn't as, as horrible as, as I thought it would be. It was definitely um, traumatic because you're dealing with all the details of what happened, and it's, it's quite public. So and just to be prepared. Can, and perhaps you can talk a bit about sort of your mindset going into trial, like preparing uh, and sort of how to, you know, what you were thinking, you know, the morning of trial and, and how, how you faced those, uh, that anticipation or then, you know, about what you were going to experience. Yeah, um, I think just going over um, the chain of events, what, you know, you'll have a chance to do that with the Crown and, and, and sometimes with your private lawyer so that you can re- remember exactly what happened, like all of the details, right? Because you will be pressed on the details. And for a lot of people, it is a historic charge. Like you are, you know, it takes some time for for my scenario, like from my own experience, it took some time to come forward. And um, it also takes some time before you actually um, are able to get to a trial. So it's good to refresh your memory with, with the details. Um, the trial was in 2023. Um, and, you know, um, the sexual assault for me happened in the fall of 2019. So it is good to immerse yourself in, in that and in any sort of evidence that you've provided to the police in terms of dates and exactly what that was. Um, so throughout that process, I think that prepares you for what to expect. Um, and just to know that you will be questioned heavily by the defense. Um, and it's not your best day. You, you don't, it's not something that, that feels good because you're sharing something very personal and very traumatic that happened to you. And, you know, the defense's job is to discredit you and poke holes in, in, in your memory and your story. And, the way that people remember trauma, sometimes there, there are blanks and, um, 
you just need to be prepared for that. And okay. Can I can I just jump in uh, simply because again, it's always a question of time. Uh, Michelle, did you feel that you were treated fairly by the system? Um, that's hard to say. I, I I did provide evidence to the police in 2022. Right. And unfortunately, it didn't make it to the Crown until maybe, you know, four business days before trial. And that was in 2023. Okay. So, no, I think the, the ball was dropped in terms of um, some of the evidence okay. that could have come forward in the disclosure. You said that you were acting because you had come to the conclusion that the United States, through NATO, might initiate a, quote, surprise attack on our country. And to American ears, that sounds paranoid. Tell us why you believe the United States might strike Russia out of the blue. How did you conclude that? It's not that America, the United States, was going to launch a surprise strike on Russia. I didn't say that. Are we having a talk show or a serious conversation? So, uh, clearly, Tucker Carlson and uh, Vladimir Putin from the Kremlin, Mr. Carlson's interview with uh, with Vladimir Putin, which has become a talking point internationally, and it's available um, on X, and it's available on uh, Tucker Carlson's website, which is tuckercarlson.com. There have been lots of criticisms of the interview that uh, Mr. Carlson wasn't uh, affirmative enough with Putin and didn't ask enough questions and Putin was uh, spinning like crazy. And I uh, I looked at some of the reports that came out of uh, the interview. Mikhail Khodorovsky, who's a former Russian, well, I guess he's still a dissident. He was, he was imprisoned for challenging Putin and he, uh, he had a very interesting series of uh, what he said was lies by uh, Putin when he was being interviewed by Tucker Carlson. But how was it received? How was that interview received in uh, in Kiev? How was that interview received in Ukraine, which has been so massively and brutally assaulted by Russia, by uh, Putin? We just heard a new story today that in Kharkiv, overnight, massive missile attack on the Infrastructure, civilian infrastructure, homes, apartment buildings, hospitals, all attacked by Putin, which who has that history? He did it in Syria. He uh, did it in Chechnya. Now he's doing it in Ukraine. Let's talk to our friend uh, Alexander Sherba, former Ukraine ambassador to Austria and member of the Ukraine diplomatic mission to the United States. He's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Alexander, thank you. For coming on, what were your initial thoughts when you found out that Putin had granted an interview to Tucker Carlson? Um, hello, Roy. Uh, I was extremely wor- worried, uh, quite frankly, because uh, it's uh, the world's uh, biggest uh, criminal getting uh, the world's biggest platform uh, being interviewed by, quite frankly, I don't see Tucker as a journalist. Uh, he's uh, is a groupie of Putin, um, and uh, basically uh, there was uh, 
big certainty that uh, at least uh, certain percentage of global mankind of the of mankind will see it so it will be a possibility for um uh, this criminal uh, to make his case to explain uh, the reasons uh, why he um, actually uh, killed uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people his and uh, ukrainians uh, luckily uh, all uh, dictators in the world are uh, vain and arrogant and we saw that during this interview and putin uh, actually tried to do with uh, Tucker the same as what he does with uh, Russians. Uh, basically, um, you know, uh, seeing no uh, pushback and uh, lying. Uh, you started to thank you for picking out uh, this quote, this part of the interview. Um, Tucker says, uh, here's your quote, Mr. Pre Mr. President. Uh, I started this war because America was going to start a war against us. Basically that. And Putin says, I never said that. And Tucker doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really try to challenge it or push back or whatever. So this uh, interview that could be a chance of his life for Putin, he could start a global anti-Western movement, was squandered. It became a joke. It, it, Endless memes are going around on Twitter about that. So for me, right now, it's a big relief. Uh, how's it gone over in in Ukraine? Uh, what, what's your what's your ultimate assessment? I think you just gave us a, a good idea of what you're thinking. But add to that, please, uh, Alexander. And how is it being that interview being uh, disseminated in Ukraine and perhaps within, particularly in the Ukrainian government? Well. Uh, Twitter is not uh, the biggest uh, medium here in Ukraine. We are more a uh, Facebook nation here. Uh, within the government, uh, again, uh, the same uh, the same uh, perception as uh, mine here. So it it could be much much worse. And uh, actually, Putin told. Uh, um, his true self and his true reasons that this whole war is not about NATO. It's about uh, bringing back what was Rus once Russian in 17th century. And he sounded like someone from 17th century. So in the government, quite frankly, maybe we underestimate uh, uh, the, um, this, this, this interview. But uh, right now, uh, as I said, it's a relief in the public, in the media. Um, some say it was uh, just uh, we underestimated Tucker. In in reality, he set Putin up and uh, gave him the possibility to show his true self. Uh, but I think uh, we shouldn't overestimate Tucker either. He is a psychophant. Yeah, um, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who, um, well, maybe you can describe him best to us. I said he was a dissident who had been imprisoned. Uh, an opposition leader who'd been imprisoned by by uh, Putin, but he put on uh, X or Twitter twelve lies in twelve tweets, and he got the questions that Tucker asked him. Mr. Carlson asked him, and then uh, twelve direct lies by Putin. Who is Mikhail Khodorkovsky? Uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was once the richest man uh, in Russia, one of the most influ influential and. Uh, he had a good shot of, you know, having his political career. 
and uh, he decided uh, i th i think he wasn't just like uh, to putin's liking he didn't uh, putin doesn't like people who have political chances around him so he threw him into the jail and then released him after you know magnitsky act after all the outcry uh, in the western media so and after podorkovsky spent quite many years in the jail so yeah uh, he uh, he did a great job with these 12 uh, uh, big lies uh, in uh, Putin's interview, but the biggest, of course, the biggest is uh, Putin saying that uh, it was Poland's fault that Hitler attacked in 1939. That's just, you know, when I heard that, uh, basically, but, but this makes absolutely, totally sense. Uh, Hitler, uh, the guy who uh, blames Ukraine for his war, is blaming Poland for his uh, for for Hitler's war, uh, so um, just you no, know, and and it is filled with this uh, pseudo historical lies or half truths. Uh, but most importantly, um, we saw that for Putin, it's about grabbing land. It's not about NATO. It's not about some threats that someone uh, was uh, threatening him. He is a. 18th, 17th century uh, politician uh, who uh, is trying to roll back the time. Yeah. Uh, just for our listeners' sake, if you go to my uh, Twitter feed, at The Roy Green Show, at The Roy Green Show, you'll find the post by Khodorkovsky. Um, and I'm not going to go through the whole spelling of the name because you'll ask me to do it again. Yeah, so it's, but it is Kotakovsky underscore E-N, but you'll find it at, at the Roy Green Show, at the Roy Green Show and Mikhail Kotakovsky saying uh, 12 tweets, 12 lies by Vladimir Putin. What ultimately is going to be the effect of this? Uh, oh, no, actually, let me back it up first of all. Putin dragged Canada into the interview as well, Alexander, because of the former Ukraine volunteer who joined the SS in World War II and was honored in Canada's parliament uh, just a few months ago. How, how should we, I mean, that's just opportunism by, uh, by Putin, isn't it? Of course. Putin is uh, trying to play this Nazi card. Of course, it was very unfortunate uh, that uh, this man who uh, fought uh, on the wrong side uh, of history was celebrated such a big time. I think it was, it was, of course, uh, uh, unfortunate to say the least. <laughs> but coming from someone who just a couple of phrases later says, you know, Hitler uh, had every right to attack Poland because Poland uh, uh, overplayed uh, its hand. It's just, uh, it's insane. Um, therefore, I'm sorry about uh, Canada being mentioned in that negative context again, but um, in Ukraine, uh, this whole situation with this veteran in the parliament is already, of course, what under the bridge we have bad and good and all kinds of news uh, every day and tragedies that, uh, they, they, that cover things like this. Yeah, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that what Putin is doing through his invasion of Ukraine, is just fulfilling his ambition. And we can, if we if we follow his life a little bit, uh, his biography, his interest is in recreating. Uh, he wants to recreate the Soviet Union, and uh, Ukraine was number one on his list. 
Absolutely. Without Ukraine, this plan isn't possible. With Ukraine, it's almost the decided deal. So who will stop Putin unless uh, Ukraine doesn't it? Moldova, Kazakhstan. Uh, we see uh, that nobody in the West uh, is uh, really over eager to stop uh, Putin in his uh, plans. And they are openly discussing Alaska. They are openly discussing, um, you know, uh, uh, taking territory away, occupying the, uh, uh, part of Latvia, part of uh, Lithuania. And this is NATO members. And they are openly talking about that once, uh, not, not such a long time ago, Poland was Russian. So uh, shouldn't we uh, do something about that too? Um, it just, uh, Ukraine is indeed... Uh, one uh, big force, thank God, backed by the decent people and nations in the world in the, in the, in the way of this madness. Yeah, and the Russian economy is on war footing, isn't it? They're, uh, they're man manufacturing war equipment, they're, you know, their armaments, their, um, their tanks, uh, and, and they're getting material, war material from North Korea and uh, and Iran and other, uh, China perhaps, and other countries that are, at least see opportunity, even if they're not big admirers of Putin directly, they see opportunity here. Yeah, they uh, the axis of evil is working 24-7. Uh, their armaments are not uh, maybe very precise, although these Iranian drones are improving, unfortunately, uh, as the war goes on, and right now uh, we see that, uh, unfortunately, Ukrainian army is shooting uh, uh, less Iranian drones than, for instance, a year ago, because because they have been improving, uh, and so they, they have been learning from uh, their vulnerabilities uh, uh, as uh, time went by. Um, and uh, Russia itself is a big country, uh, as I understand, um, they are um, uh, producing more uh, shells and more uh, all kinds of uh, military equipment uh, because they work, uh, again, 24-7. But it's not because they're building new factories like during the World War II. Uh, they can't. They don't have the capability to do that. Um, so that's at least uh, that their economy is not at that in that big shape. There is great shape. There are some economists in Russia who are saying um, Putin is praying to uh, uh, that 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 uh, the West uh, to to wait with the West out and Ukraine out in twenty four twenty five because after that he's out of money. So mm -hmm. that's that's uh, not uh, very rosy for him either. Uh, Alexander, in, a, in about uh, a minute and a half, uh, how enduring is this interview with Putin going to be? And do you think it heralds a beginning of Putin trying to increasingly now, he'll try to reach out to the rest of the world with his story? Well, uh, Putin, this interview, most the significance of this interview is that it showed that Russia is run by a person, but by a man who doesn't think straight, who lives in the past, who thinks that because Ukraine was once Russia, he can occupy Ukraine, he can destroy Ukraine, he can kill hundreds of thousands of people. And as long as this guy is at the power in the, uh, in the Kremlin, uh, 
nobody is safe, not only Ukraine, Europe, America, whatever. He is a problem. We have Russia problem, no matter. But first of all, we have Putin problem. And thank God for uh, Putin's uh, arrogance, uh, basically uh, showing this. Uh, the more such interviews he gives, the better for uh, Ukraine and for truth. Okay. Final question for you. How how's the uh, how are you doing militarily fighting the Russians? Um, your president sacked the uh, the commander of the Ukrainian military uh, last week. How, how are you doing? Well, the commander was immensely popular, still is, uh, General Zaluzhny. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, uh, there haven't been there have been disagreements between political and military uh, leadership. I think. These disagreements were rooting, among other things, in the fact that we, one of our biggest uh, partners uh, uh, decided to take some time off in you know, supporting Ukraine, and all of a sudden we had these huge deficiencies in this and that. So uh, now there is a new guy uh, who is ethnic Russian, whose whole family lives uh, in Russia, but he is an absolutely dedicated Ukrainian soldier. And uh, he will have to make his, him a good name, too. Uh, people say uh, both good and bad things about him, but uh, he definitely deserves the benefit, the, the, the benefit of the doubt. Yesterday, we announced new funding to make sure the Canada Border Service Agency, RCMP, and the Public Safety Ministry are equipped with enhanced investigative tools and can better detect illegal shipments at ports and recover more stolen vehicles. Of course, one of the best things we can do to prevent auto theft is prevent those thefts from happening in the first place. Couldn't have figured that one out myself. Uh, the Prime Minister of this country trying to take advantage of any and every opportunity to do a little work on his image. Um, emails, a couple of emails already this day at uh, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com saying, are you going to do anything on the ArriveCan app? Yep, we will tomorrow because the Auditor General's report on ArriveCan is going to be released on Monday. So I put out on Twitter or X, sorry, Elon, uh, I, I keep saying, I don't want to argue with a guy who's got $246 billion. He wants it to be X. It's X. So I put out on Twitter earlier today, ad scam, which kneecapped the Chrétien government, may prove to have served as a training camp for disguised and fraudulent spending within the federal government when the Auditor General's report on the ArriveCan app crashes through layers of slimy Ottawa obfuscation on Monday. You can follow me on X. At the Roy Green Show. All right, so Mr. Trudeau was talking about something that is really significantly important, and it is a, it's something that affects each and every one of us, and that is vehicle theft in Canada. Massive numbers of vehicles are being stolen, and when it happens, it doesn't just affect the person whose vehicle is being stolen, because the costs and the experience, the negative experience, is nationwide. Let's talk about this with Amanda Dean. She's the Vice President for Ontario and Atlantic Canada with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Ms. Dean, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. 
So this is an increasingly serious issue with uh, more than 105,000 vehicles stolen across Canada in 2022. And in the province of Ontario alone, costing over $700 million in just province-wide losses. Can you speak some more to that, please, and tell us more broadly what the national picture looks like? Absolutely. Nationally, in 2022, insurers paid out over $1.2 billion in claims for auto theft alone. Now, we also recognize that that does not include those vehicles that uh, perhaps didn't have insurance coverage for whatever reason or those vehicles that were stolen and, and not reported, again, for whatever reason. So that was a record-breaking year, $1.2 billion in 2022. What we've been hearing from law enforcement is that 2023 is on, on record to be even bigger. So it is a huge uh, issue when it comes to the dollars and cents that we all pay for our insurance premiums as claims drive premiums. And as we've seen from 2018 to 2022, there was a 329% increase in the cost of auto theft claims alone. That is staggering. So insurers uh, and IBC, we are the National Trade Association on behalf of our members, in addition to other industry partners, Equity Association, we are willing to come to the table and do what it takes to stop this issue because our claims departments also hear the vulnerability and violation in people's voices after they've lost their car. Maybe their home has been broken in in order for somebody to grab a key fob. This is certainly becoming a national crisis. Mm -hmm. We're going to be speaking with Mr. Brian Gast of Equity Association after I speak with you. Um, you know, $1.2 billion, it kind of rolls off your tongue because we hear big numbers constantly coming from nation's mm -hmm. capitals. What are we spending? Hundreds of billions of dollars. But let's bring it back to a number that we can all work with. A billion dollars mm -hmm. is $1,000 million, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And That's a huge number. It, it is a huge number. And if you look at it um, on a per-insured vehicle basis, in Ontario, that amounted to $130 of your premium if you drove a car in Ontario, mm -hmm. went to pay for auto theft claims. And in other provinces across this country, that number may have been a little bit lower. However, it's still impactful because mm -hmm. that number is increasing as we see more and more auto theft in uh, taking place. And with 2023, again, from from folks telling us that it looks like it's going to be uh, another record-breaking year. We'll have full-year numbers uh, by the end of June of this year. It, uh, it's, it's staggering. It's certainly costing us uh, drivers an awful lot of money, um, and it's something, especially in, in this economy, that we could all use a break from. Yeah. So we broadcast across most of Canada on this mm -hmm. program, and... Uh, we do hear from, and I will hear from people, I'm sure, who've had vehicles stolen. We may have an opportunity before the end of the day or tomorrow to take some phone calls on this issue. But why? Ms. Dean, why is this going on? And am I to surmise here, when you look at the numbers and you say they've gone up, what, 29%? Uh, 329%. 329%. Yeah. Over how long a period? Of five years, 2018 Whoa. to 2022. Oh, my goodness. 
So 329% increase in stolen vehicles, $1.2 billion um, in, uh, was, was the cost in, in uh, 2022. Why is this going on? Is it, is it a crime of opportunity? Is it because vehicles are more easily broken into? Is it a literal gone in 60 seconds scenario? All of the above, and it's a lucrative market for um, those who are engaged in in stealing these vehicles. So as Equity Association can go into a lot more detail on, uh, the vast majority of these vehicles are ending up in overseas markets. So that's why the the announcement uh, from the federal government to give more resources to Canada Border Service Agency, CBSA, in looking at containers and especially vehicles that are bound for export is so important to be able to share that information uh, with the insurance industry as well as law enforcement and have those those channels, those lines of communication open. Now, for the remain, ma- remaining vehicles uh, that aren't bound for export, once they're stolen, there's a lot of things that, that can happen. They can be uh, revinned, for example. Uh, they'll be re-registered, um, maybe in a neighboring province. We've seen some stories within the past few months of cars stolen in Ontario, registered in Alberta, and after a, a few months, they're found to have been those those very stolen vehicles. The criminals can do that by uh, registering fictitious VINs, if you will, creating ghost VIN numbers. Uh, and then once those vehicles are found to be stolen, they've already most likely been sold to an unsuspecting consumer. Uh, so now that consumer is a, a vehicle in addition to the money that they paid for it, which is, again, challenging. So if you are purchasing a used vehicle and the deal seems too good to be true, it's very likely that it is too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're, we're talking to uh, provincial governments about ways that the registration process can be tightened up in order to prevent this from happening because that that crime in particular violates not only uh, those individuals who have their cars stolen, but also the individuals who purchase those stolen cars again. Yeah. So, so three, I'm stuck on this number, 329% increase over five years. That's massive. Mm-hmm. To bring that back to where it was five years ago, which would, I'm assuming wasn't perfect at the time, but it's insanely out of whack now, 329% increase over five years. What, what's the most fundamental thing that has to be done? You've talked about governments involved, provincial governments involved. I would, I would think that somehow the whole idea of shipping them overseas would have to be investigated, maybe changed. But how do you get that number back to where it was five years ago and then work on that to get it even lower? What's the first thing you have to do? Well, one of the first things that you have to do is cut off the market, cut off the ease with which uh, stolen vehicles can be sold. So that is the, the shipping them overseas and that is selling them to unsuspecting consumers. The other thing that needs to be done is just consumer awareness when you're you're purchasing a vehicle. Um, for example, Equite Association issues annually a top 10 most stolen vehicle list. Take a look at that list. If the vehicle that you're going to purchase appears on that list, it is likely that you're going to have a surcharge when you go to insure that vehicle. So in terms of prevention, many insurers have encouraged their customers to install an approved aftermarket tracking device. In some cases, the surcharge, which is applied 
on high-risk vehicles may be waived or reduced if that tracking device is, is installed. And what that does is that at least gives the insurer a chance to help the customer and the customer a chance to get that vehicle mm-hmm. back. Yeah. This is quite the story. It affects everybody. It, it absolutely affects everybody. And even if it hasn't affected you personally, you likely mm-hmm. know someone who has had a vehicle stolen. And it's it's not because the numbers are so large. It's not uh, it's not not going to be a simple solution. No, no. A whole of society approach is needed. Yeah. Um, more work from the federal government. They have committed to creating an auto theft action plan, which is great. Provinces, um, municipalities, vehicle manufacturers, insurers, consumers, everyone has a role to play okay. in combating this issue because it has exploded uh, to such a. Uh, such a great one. The increase in, uh, as far as auto thefts are concerned in Canada, 329% in the last five years, $1.2 billion, is what it costs Canadians. Uh, Ms. Dean also mentioned Equité Association, and they work very closely with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Brian Gast is the Vice President of Investigative Services at Equité Association. Mr. Gass, thank you very much for the time. What specifically do you do at Equité Association as far as uh, auto theft is concerned? Where's your focus? Yeah, it's through advanced analytics and investigations. We have uh, expert vehicle examiners across the country and focusing on all insurance crime. And specifically, what's really taken our resources is uh, vehicle crimes and uh, auto theft over the last few years. Okay, so it's been really surging. Okay, so so you're the vice president of investigative services. What are you finding? Vehicles are gone across Canada. What do you most commonly find when you investigate? Yeah, yeah, it is across the country, and really, it's Ontario and Quebec. Uh, What's different versus maybe in the West is vehicles are being stolen specifically for export. So that's why we work with our partners at uh, uh, CBSA. Uh, Montreal Police, uh, OPP, uh, and the police services within Ontario and Quebec, and uh, trying to get, stop the vehicles before they get out of the country. And then that's a whole other story once they get out of the country, what we do. Okay, so m- mostly central Canada as opposed to Atlantic Canada and Western Canada? Yeah, Atlantic as well. Uh, vehicles are stolen for different reasons. In the West, a lot of them are stolen more for crime vehicles to commit other crimes. Uh, we're starting to see different trends with revinning uh, in the West. Uh, vehicles are being stolen. Newer vehicles are being stolen in the West and sent on the rails to the eastern ports, which is uh, a new trend over the last you know, year or so. Traditionally, there have been older vehicles in, in the West and uh, more pickup trucks, larger pickup trucks. Ontario and Quebec, predominantly SUVs, pickup trucks, and sedans. Uh, newer models, uh, higher value. So, so what about uh, the technology that's built into vehicles that is supposed to deter thefts? When I walk away from my car, a little red light flashes on, on, on the dash. It's supposed to reassure me that you know this car is going to fight back if somebody tries to steal it. Um, is, is that technology just being overwhelmed by the technology the thieves have? And you're right. The thieves do have sophisticated technology. Uh, it's available to them uh, globally. Uh, Canada's current standard for vehicle theft protection, uh, every vehicle manufactured in Canada since 2007, 
has to have an immobilizer. That standard hasn't been updated uh, since 2007. So vehicles aren't, uh, by standard, um, they're not uh, protected uh, against the latest trends in vehicle theft. Okay, so I could I, I could go to a technology store in 2024, I'm just guessing here, yep. and, and purchase something uh, off the shelf maybe that could relatively easily overwhelm the security system in a car, a security system that was designed in, and, and put in, in, into place in 2007. Yeah, and I always do my best not to have, give a how-to guide to steal vehicles. No, I'm not asking you to do yeah, that, no. You're, you're right. I mean, uh, it's always good to explain what the vulnerabilities are. Because right now, it's really vehicles with push-start uh, ignitions, the, bu- uh, the button, uh, keyless entry, keyless ignition. Uh, they have conveniences, but they also come with vulnerabilities. So whether it be a relay attack, and you've probably seen the images where somebody's standing on somebody's front porch, trying to intercept that radio frequency or reprogramming thefts where they're plugging into the onboard diagnostic port and reprogramming a a new key fob to make your vehicle fully functional. Those are the two primary methods. And uh, criminals do have access to technology that can uh, use uh, those two vulnerabilities to steal a vehicle relatively quickly. Okay. So 15 to 20 seconds. So so, how, how long? 15 to 20 seconds. Good grief. So I have all that stuff that you mentioned. Technology, right? Push button start, keyless entry, all that, all that, all that convenient stuff, which is great, but it's not better for the thief. Um, what, what can I do? What can those of us do who have that, uh, those features on our vehicles to make it a, at least a little more difficult for the car thief? And I think that's a very good point. Until the, our goal is for the vehicle itself to be harder to, to steal, and that might be a longer-term goal. So in the meantime, we call it a layered approach. The more that you can do to do exactly what you just said, make it harder for the criminal to steal your vehicle at time. They do not want to be in your vehicle for very long. So uh, you park in your garage is always the best, but not everybody has that uh, luxury or the ability to park in a garage. If you have two cars, park one that's more susceptible of being stolen and block something in behind it. Uh, use a steering wheel lock. Use an aftermarket immobilizer. Use an aftermarket tracking service. Use a Faraday pouch or something to protect the signal. Or some key fobs have the ability to either go into sleep mode or uh, be shut off. Use a, um, a, like I mentioned, a steering wheel lock. Really, anything that uh, makes it harder okay. and more of a deterrent. Okay. I, I will do that. I was going to put a very large dog in the garage. but <laughs> That works, too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.